It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. One thing that's been coming up in our private conversations with each other is sometimes it feels like a struggle to navigate what's true. Yeah, this is something that keeps coming up over and over again, because I think right now, Whitney, just the sheer deluge of information every single day of research and studies and updates and news flashes and conspiracy theories and recommendations and CDC guidelines it feels like every single day, there's at least one point where I feel massively overwhelmed. And I keep coming back to this question of what is true. Mm-hmm. And I know this came up in our conversation with Luke's story, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com, which was just a wonderful conversation with Luke. And one of the things we touched on, as you remember, is can we know the absolute truth? And is there a difference between a universal or absolute truth and a subjective personal truth. And I feel like right now this concept of truth is so aqueous and fluid. And I think it's further compounded by so many people very passionately and sometimes with a lot of fervor and anger and vitriol claiming that they have, quote, the truth. And when I say the truth, I mean in italics and bolded and capital letters, like I know what's going on this is what's real. This is the truth. And every single day, it seems like more and more people are making that kind of claim. And I just got to take a deep breath with it all because it's starting to feel just overwhelming. Everyone kind of in their positions, be it politically or scientifically or biologically or spiritually, like, no, actually, this is what's going on. And I find myself just kind of wanting to tune out and not consume as much information. Are you feeling me on that? Like, how are you handling all of this in this just constant deluge and barrage of information? People being like, oh, this is the way, this is what's going on. You need to watch this video. I wouldn't say it's that different than normal. I think that I'm noticing the confusion a little bit more than normal, if anything. But I really love doing research. I love reading articles. I love examining perspectives and having conversations about it. I think. What I have been grappling with a little bit more noticeably, again, I don't know if this is anything new necessarily. It's just something I've been reflecting on for the past few days specifically is having conversations with people who have different point of views, who may disagree, because I really don't like conflict. I don't like debating. I don't like arguments. And I really enjoy conversations with people where I feel safe and I won't feel judged. And I've found myself feeling a lot closer to people in my life where I can have those conversations where I feel like they'll listen to me without judging what I'm saying, or at least I don't perceive them as judging. You know, it doesn't turn into an argument. Again, I feel like this has been happening most of my life, but I've been noticing it a little bit more. And I have a number of girlfriends that I've been speaking with more frequently, relatively, meaning I'll get on the phone with them and have like an hour long conversation with them. And there's been a handful of them that I've been doing this with. And it's so wonderful. 
And I find myself craving conversations with specific friends that I know I feel really at ease with emotionally because I don't feel like it's going to turn into a disagreement. And on the same note, there's some people that I don't feel as comfortable with emotionally. I don't feel as safe with, whether it's my perception of it or not. And I think right now, what's coming up is a fear around talking about a lot of the COVID-related conversations, right? Knowing that some people just have completely different perspectives on this. And I found myself feeling really uncomfortable with certain people or avoiding posting online, for example, because I'm afraid that it's going to turn into some sort of debate. And that's just such an interesting experience. Something I wanted to explore today is how do we not only try to figure out the truth if there is one? I mean, I'm actually starting to feel like maybe there isn't truth. And I think that that tends to be my stance in general. And something that comes up a lot for me during these podcast episodes is how much I see gray areas instead of black and white and how I find myself seeing the different perspectives. So it's not only trying to sort through true or false, because maybe there isn't a true or false. Maybe there's always a black and white, you know? Right, right. But it's also having conversations with people that disagree. And how do you navigate those moments, especially for someone like me who really wants to keep things peaceful? What I have a tendency to do is either not speak up when I disagree, or I'll try to like finesse my words a little bit so that they land on the ears of somebody who disagrees with me in a soft way. That makes sense. Like, okay, like maybe I'll just let them know that, that I may disagree, but I can do it in like a really kind and compassionate way, right? Because I just like, I hate that feeling of arguing or I guess I feel very uncomfortable when I feel misunderstood. And I think that comes down to this core desire for this core fear of being rejected. Like, I don't want my friend or this person, whoever it is, to reject me because we have different viewpoints. Yeah. Yeah. That's more of a core thing, right? I mean, that's not just isolated to differences of opinion or in particular the COVID-19 crisis that worldwide we've all been wrestling with. It's interesting though, because I think in the personal development space and the spiritual development space, the wellness world, whatever you want to call it, the playground we play in often, Whitney, on a personal and professional level is this idea of stand up and speak your truth, you know, to paraphrase it, is like that, you know, to open your throat chakra or to move stuck energy or to make sure that you're moving emotions properly, like passionately stand up and speak your truth. But I think that the nature of truth is a very aqueous, ever-evolving thing, as is the nature and understanding of reality. When we bring up truth, where I go to is this idea of how do we know what's real? in terms of our reality. And I think about a lot of the lessons in our current, and I always say current understanding because there's no finite understanding, especially when it comes to something like, say, quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, where in all of these experiments of quantum mechanics, they found that there's an observer effect and that as someone observes the effect of particle collisions on a subatomic level, all these experiments they've done in quantum theory that the observer influences the result of the experiment. So when we're talking about truth, especially right now when there's so much information and research and videos and 
information suppression and conspiracy theories, all the things we're talking about, I always return to how much does something like confirmation bias or expectation shape and mold a person's perception of what they think is true? And what I mean by that is if someone already has, say, a political leaning or a embedded belief system that the government's corrupt or the CDC or the WHO or these governing bodies are, they want to vaccinate and microchip us and turn us into robots and create what I keep seeing is, is just versions of some science fiction dystopian future, okay? That if one has a predisposition to believe those things, then any information or videos or research or studies or cover-ups come out, they'll go, ah, see, told ya, they are out to get us. And it's almost as if, as one example, anything to the contrary, that maybe there is good progress or there are people in, say, the government or the CDC or WH or whatever it is, whatever governing body, may be working for good. It's almost as if the compelling narrative or the preconditioned response is they're bad, everything they do is bad. And on the other side too, I mean, we can take so many differing perspectives here. I guess my point is, if we look at it in terms of the nature of truth and reality, how are our preconceived beliefs or belief systems conditioning that reality to fit to those notions we already believe are true? I think that's a very, very powerful effect is that confirmation bias. Absolutely. And part of what you were saying reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend recently who's a therapist. And she has been observing through some research and her own experiences in therapy that there's a possible link between mental illness and believing conspiracy theories. And I thought it was super fascinating. And I haven't done any research on this yet, but I've been reflecting on that possibility. And I think it's so important because there's so much that shapes what we believe. And that could be our backgrounds, that can be our education, our culture, the people in our lives. And it could also brain chemistry. I mean, it could just be straight up like how your brain works. And I'm just incredibly fascinated by that. How do we know what any truth is when our brains are always interpreting information. So even when we look at the exact same thing as somebody else, we may be thinking about it and perceiving it completely differently. And it's like, it's almost as if it's impossible to know what truth is if everybody is viewing something a little bit differently. Or the nature of, like, I go back to reality and truth. And I was watching an incredible documentary really hilarious and also very well done and very well researched on Netflix this past week about psychedelic plant medicines called uh, Have a Good Trip. We'll link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. Really well done. And so many interesting guests about their experiences with psychedelics and very, very detailed experiences of the trips and the journeys that they've been on. And it reminded me of, as you're talking about brain chemistry, Whitney, and we think about things like, yes, psychedelic medicines like psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca. We've talked about these pretty in depth here on the podcast in previous episodes. But then I also think about something like going to a cacao ceremony or drinking alcohol or having cannabis or really great coffee or really great chocolate. You know, there are so many things that alter our chemistry in our human body and that therefore alter our reality. 
So it went into this documentary about questioning what is real and what is the nature of reality. And for me, when I've had these experiences and these lessons on psychedelics, and it literally felt like I was in a completely different reality, the visuals, the smells, the sounds, the the things I was experiencing, it makes you question what is reality. And I think that we have, again, a bias that you know, here on earth in this third dimensional reality, as we call it, that this is the ultimate truth. Like this is the only reality there is. And I think that that's a misnomer because we have things like intuition. We have things like love. You can't taste love. You can't smell love. You can't have it tangibly in your hands like a physical thing, but we believe love is real, but it's not a tangible physical thing. So then it's not really a third dimensional concrete thing. Love emotions, fear, hatred, but we experience them nonetheless. And I guess it goes back to what we think is, quote, real, or what we think is the highest level of experiencing reality. For me, I've experienced so many layers of reality that, I don't know, I mean, there's things after our death, people talking about, you know, near-death experiences. I just think that what we perceive with our five senses in day-to-day life it's barely a sliver of what we're able to experience. And that fascinates me. It always has. I was reading an article that inspired me to talk about this today. And I had sent it to you, Jason. And I don't know if you actually ended up reading it. It was a Forbes article entitled, Why It's Important to Push Back on Plandemic and How to Do It. I did read it. You did? Yeah. Well, I think it was from that article because this is, my notes were coming up as I was reading that. As usual, I'm usually reading a few different articles at once, and I'll link to some of them in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, and we'll link to that movie that Jason talked about and anything else that we discussed today. And uh, I hope that's the right source for this because I was copying and pasting some of the words and phrases that were resonating with me, and so I wanted to read some. And it said, we are all trying to make sense of what this means and what to do, this meaning COVID. Uncertainty is uncomfortable. People want answers. Conspiracy theories can be comforting claims that sound reasonable because they're familiar. They make us long for certainty, and no one can be blamed for wanting to seek out clear messages. We crave certainty. We may prefer to hear facts that confirm our biases or things that make us feel we have control over what's going on in the world. We're hungry for anything that can make this moment in our lives feel a little bit less weird. Remember, if you want to believe what you're hearing, you should put your guard up just a little bit more. I think that's well said. And I think it applies to everything, though, because what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot of my friends and colleagues and people that you and I both know, Whitney, who are incredibly intelligent, well-researched, well-intentioned people producing content that is bringing in experts and virologists and PhDs and people that are clearly very well-researched and well-respected in their fields. And then you immediately see rebuttal articles in Forbes magazine and the New York Times, and it's starting to feel like a war of intellect of, well, we have these statistics over here, and we have this person who used to work with Anthony Fauci at the CDC, but here's Anthony Fauci's credentials, but Judy Mikovits and Rashid Buttar and David Icke, and it just seems like there is a war right now between a faction of people 
who believe that, as I said, world governments are corrupt and there's a plan to vaccinate and microchip and steal everyone's privacy and autonomy over their own bodies. And there's another camp that's like, hey, everyone's just doing their best. We don't really think that the government and people like think critically. And it's interesting that that section you brought up, Whitney, because I feel like on the truth teller conspiracy theorist side, they're saying, think critically, open your mind, take the right pill in the matrix. And then in this Forbes article, it's also in its own way saying, think critically, be open-minded, don't believe everything you read. Yes. They're almost saying the same thing, but they're also trying to debunk each other at the same time, which is, if we both zoom out, we all zoom out, even you, dear listener, and try not to get too attached to any one position, it's actually fascinating because I think there's a mixture of ego in trying to, quote, prove each other wrong. But I also believe that the undercurrent is, hey, keep an open mind, don't believe everything you read or see, and just like, this is going to play out how it plays out. I think there are well-intentioned journalists and video makers and filmmakers, some of which we know personally, that I think their heart and their intention is in the right place, but but it just seems to be a war of intellect and a war of facts and data points. At a certain point, I start to get exhausted by it and just have to like retreat for a few minutes. By a few minutes, I mean like a few days or even a week. <laughs> I love that. Really? Really? No, I'm being more accurate with my speech where it's like, I've watched Plandemic. It's not actually the full movie, but the first interview that came out with Judy Mikovits and talking about Anthony Fauci and the CDC and that whole saga. And then I read the rebuttal article you sent through Forbes, and I've seen other people trying to refute who Judy is and the facts and the things that we're stating. And then Mickey Willis and our friend Nathaniel and some of the people working on the Plandemic project came back with their own set of facts. And at a certain point, you're like, wow, okay, clearly everyone's doing their research, but you're saying you have these facts and you have these facts. So what's real? It goes back to the core argument of what we're talking about in this episode with what is the fucking truth? And it's hard because you see people that are doing research and that are bringing up facts that you can look on the internet and go, oh, well, that's from that research project and that's from that. And it kind of leaves me with the emoji I sent you earlier, which is there's that emoji of shrugging and putting your hands up, which is like, I don't know what the truth is. Don't know. Well, it's interesting, though, because maybe we'll never know what the truth is. And I think that's actually the hardest part to let go of. And again, my perspective is that usual thing where I'm somewhere in between because I saw a pandemic. I originally felt like I could trust it because I've trusted Mickey for many years. Yes. I can't recall if I've ever actually met him, but I, as Jason mentioned, I'm only like one degree of separation away from him through many acquaintances and friends. And have you ever met him, Jason? I have. Yeah. I've met him up in Ojai actually several times at the old Elevate Films house. And I've been to several of the previous films he made Mm -hmm. when the loft that they had was in downtown LA before they moved the business to Ojai. So I know Mickey personally. And that's the thing, Wit, is knowing his integrity as a human being. Well, that also is similar to the other, I mean, if we take it outside of the COVID context, you sent me this article about someone else I won't name for now. Maybe it'll come up in another episode, but somebody else that Jason and I have known for years was in a New York, was it New York Times or LA Times? Oh, it was an LA Times article that came out like yesterday, I think. Well, we're not trying to be a tease, but there was a an article that came out about someone that we know. And I just immediately assumed that it was a positive piece. And I kept reading and I was like, oh, this is also 
another one of those articles shedding light on sides of this person that I don't know are true or not. And I found myself like really having to not jump to any conclusions, I suppose. Like I was just trying to keep this really balanced perspective. And I found myself at moments wanting to defend him, even though I don't know him super well. Unlike Mickey, I know for sure that I've met this other person. And I feel a similar feeling towards both of them, which is like, wow, I think these people are really cool and they're doing great work and they seem really well-intentioned and I trust them and it seems like other people trust them. And so you know, you go in with this perception of trust for somebody and then some really well-established, credible platforms come out sharing information about each of them that has me questioning, like, do I know the truth of who they are? And then there's this fear that I have, which is what if my truth of this person is not other people's truth? You know what? It also kind of reminds me of the Me Too movement in some ways. Or any time that somebody has gotten in trouble for something, right? Or been accused is a better word. Accused of something and you just think, whoa, like this is blowing my mind open. Because if all these people are sharing evidence that goes with this narrative that is completely against my personal experience, how do I know what to believe anymore? This is so important. And I think, first of all, what comes up for me is that even if we know someone intimately, how many times have we been in a romantic partnership or a family situation where perhaps we learn something about someone we deeply care about that we've known for years and something gets revealed or they tell us something or something comes to the forefront where we think, my God, I had no idea that you felt this way or you were doing this thing or, or this side of you existed. There's an innumerable number of examples from my own life where it's like, wow, I had no idea that you had this thing you were doing or this side to your personality. So there's almost this element of we can never, first of all, fully know all of the layers to another person's personality, persona, or psyche. We just can't. There are layers that are probably never going to get revealed to us fully. But the other side of it, and this is the touchstone I keep going back to, Whitney, for better or for worse, with this constant deluge of conflicting articles and YouTube videos and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram literally pulling videos off of the platform. And that's a whole nother thing of censorship. Maybe we can get into in this episode, which is very troubling to me. I still have to go back to the one thing that I think I can count on, which is my intuition. It doesn't mean that the intuition is the arbiter of truth. Like, oh, you should trust your gut on whether or not this piece on this person is the absolute truth. But Knowing Mickey and knowing this other person this article came out with today, or yesterday rather, if I check in with my gut, my gut has to go with all of the personal interactions I've had over the years with these two people have been overwhelmingly positive and overwhelmingly heartfelt. And I felt that there was a level of soulfulness and commitment and honesty and love emanating from these two people. That's the only thing I know for sure is in my personal interactions with these people, which are multiple, that if I trust that energy that I felt with them and I can somehow feel that their energy is going to automatically go into their integrity of their business and what they do in the world, I have to trust that, right? Because if I examine, say, like Forbes magazine or the LA Times or mass media, I personally do have a distrust of mass media. I want to just talk about that for a second because a platform like Forbes magazine 
and a platform like the LA Times, much like TV, much like a lot of our media, is driven by advertising revenue. And if they do something, and I experienced this, you know, in TV, my experience with TV of just if there are corporate revenue streams that are putting advertising on your media platform that disagree with the editorialism that you're putting out there, most media outlets are not going to risk losing out on major, major advertising revenue by putting out content that disagrees with the perspectives of the advertisers. So I just have an automatic inherent distrust of big media outlets for that reason, because the majority of them are beholden to their ad revenue. That's just how they make their money. And that's a fair thing. But one point in that LA Times article that really hit home for me, and I was trying to pull it up, but unfortunately, I'm not a subscriber. So I've run out of uh, <laughs> viewing the article for free. You just have to clear your cache oh. and restart your browser, and then it'll allow you to access it for free again. So, oh, okay. <laughs> Sometimes I feel really guilty about doing things like that because I'm like, gosh, I mean, they deserve to be paid for their media, but when you're just trying to find like some little thing in it, it's really frustrating if you've already read the article. Anyways, there was this one line, and maybe if you have it, Jason, pulled up, it was towards the bottom, I think, of the end of the article. And it was basically saying that this person that they wrote this article about may have acted in a way to basically save himself and keep his power. I'm trying to find like the words to describe it without having the exact quote, but it's like sometimes when we get a taste of power and we get all this attention and we have all these people like praising us and loving us and following us and telling us that we're the best, it's grappling, not grappling, but like clinging on to that. Yeah. Once people are like, you're amazing. We love what you're doing. Keep going. You're a hero. You kind of get addicted to that. Sure. And I think that that might even happen with some of these publications. It's like they're trying to prove that they're the credible source and they're the experts. And maybe it isn't just about advertisers. It's kind of like trying to keep the attention on you. You see this with content creators all the time. It's like creating their thumbnails so that people will clickbait, basically. Writing the right title so people will click on what you're doing to check it out. It's like, how do we get attention? How do we get people keeping with us because if our numbers are high, then we'll make more money. And so to your point, it's not just about the exact advertisers, but it's about getting people stirred up enough. I mean, this just happened to me the other day. (laughs) I found myself going down this really bizarre rabbit hole. I was super fascinated by the psychology of Khloe Kardashian. She posted a photo of herself that like sent the internet into this storm of opinions. And Basically, it was very controversial because the picture that she posted on Instagram looks nothing like her. And for the past few days, as of the time we're recording this, like so many people have just been posting all their opinions and like, did she get surgery? Did she just use the editing app? You know, what did she do? And part of me is thinking, she probably knew that. She probably knew that it didn't look like her. And if she posted it, it would get all these people talking about her. And so I can't stop thinking about Khloe Kardashian. I'm super fascinated by this, right? And so it's like, in a way, if she planned that, it's so manipulative because it gets people like me who don't normally care about her to pay attention to her. Okay. So what you've landed on is what I perceive in our media economy is the most valuable asset, which is attention. And those who can create controversy create attention. 
and it is very manipulative. I'm not saying she did it on purpose, but if I had to hedge a bet, she probably did, right? Because we know that eyeballs, click-throughs, views, viewing time, number of hits, attention is the currency. And what does that mean? Attention leads to endorsement deals. Attention leads to ad revenue. Attention leads to brand deals. Attention leads to all of these opportunities because that is the currency right now that is absolutely in terms of a media and social media sense is at the top of the pyramid. If you command the most attention and the Kardashians are fantastic, they've mastered it. But that's the thing is like, we've seen now a corollary for most people. It's not an exact corollary, but if you command sustained attention over a long period of time, that's rewarded in our society right now. And since people know that, they're going to try to get that attention sometimes by any means necessary. And that's what I'm wondering too, is like, even though this article about this person we're referencing doesn't necessarily paint him in the best light, it does leave more of a question mark. I think the article wasn't very conclusive. They're like, here's some things that we discovered that may go against the narrative he's been painting for us. And it makes you wonder what's true or not, right? I think if I didn't know him, I would probably come away with a bad impression of him, to be honest. And maybe just the fact that I know him makes me feel like I'm hoping that it isn't true, right? I don't know if that's how you felt, Jason. Boy, oh boy. It's complicated because when you know someone personally, as I mentioned, there's this automatic reactivity I've noticed within me of, I don't want to believe this is true because here's a person who has been a champion for animals and animal protection and rescue and all of these things. And then hearing about some of the the accused methodologies in which to rescue these animals or gain more attention for the operation, those things, it becomes concerning. Again, if I default to my intuition and what I've known of this person in many, many physical interactions, it makes me scratch my head and go, this doesn't seem right. But also there's that point of doubt where you're like, how well do you know someone? And I don't want to believe it's true. I can't confirm whether it's true or not. And I have to go back to, I feel like this person has a good heart. I feel like they've done a lot of great things, but also you don't, I don't know, you don't know all the sides to a person. It leaves me kind of like, shit, I don't know what's true. I want to default again to the impression I have of this person that I've known for years, but I don't know. It's just, it's weird right now, Whitney. And it goes back to the thing you said at the beginning of like, I think people are craving certainty and safety right now. And it's like, ah, I know the truth about this person. I know the truth about the COVID situation. I know the truth about what the government's doing. It makes someone feel safer and more certain about what's going on. But to me, this kind of article is just more of the same of like, wow, do I really know this guy who I actually know personally? Shit, maybe I don't. Right. And then you wonder, is it doing this person a disservice or a service? And I think in the case of the pandemic movie, how many people beyond our circle of like friends, acquaintances, and people in like the local area really knew who Mickey Willis was before all of this. I mean, he is now a public figure in a bigger way than I think he's ever had before. You know, he had like a viral video before and some documentaries, and I'm sure a good number of people knew who he was. But like, I've been talking to friends, like they didn't know who he was before all of this. And I just wonder, like, in a way, is it like, oh, who cares if it's controversial? Because now everybody knows who I am. I don't think that he necessarily would want that. But maybe that woman that he featured in the movie, like, I didn't know who she was. 
So in a way, it's like, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? It's just all bringing attention to it and getting people to talk about it oh, God. and fired up. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter what people think anyways. So all of this is just kind of something to talk about, I suppose. And I had a few other things I wanted to bring up from other articles I read. One was from The Atlantic, and it was how to talk about coronavirus. I thought this was really well said. And again, I, I hope that I'm quoting the right source for each of these. That's why I always link to them in the show notes because sometimes I have quotes in my notes that aren't as... I need to organize them a little bit better, I think. So I think this is from The Atlantic where it said, people are cognitive misers. We all tend not to expend mental energy when possible. We are subject to profound cognitive biases. We rely on heuristics to help us make decisions quickly. By offering us patterns and chaos and meaning and randomness, biases and heuristics reduce the complexity of our judgments. And they almost always do so in align with our existing beliefs, values, and identities. And without our conscious awareness, humans will go to tremendous lengths to preserve our dignity and social status. Powerful. And I think that it goes back to me wanting to encourage the listener and whoever's consuming this episode to stay open because whether it's the Atlantic or Forbes or the LA Times or Plandemic or YouTube videos or I just think it's so important to stay open right now. That's what I'm really, really trying to do. And on either side of the coin, as I mentioned, you have people that are so firmly entrenched, as you mentioned, this heuristic nature of oh, right, the hippies who don't believe in vaccinating their children, they're the crazy ones, right? They're nuts, like, fuck them. And then the people that are creating some of the other content are like, okay, yeah, you shouldn't trust any of these people because they're funded by the Gates Foundation and the CDC and blah, blah, blah. It's just, I'm firmly in a position of, I don't have absolute truth. I want to try and get as much data as possible, but not be so entrenched in one position that it starts to close my mind and my heart. And if I start to feel my heart and my mind are closing, Whitney, that's when kind of red flags go off. Or if I start to feel myself getting really angry, and I remember in the beginning, I started to feel this way about the stuff that was coming up about Bill Gates. And there is a lot of concerning shit about Bill Gates. I will just say that off the bat. There's incredibly concerning stuff about his track record. But when I started to feel myself go into this mode of he's the enemy, he's the devil, he's the antichrist, like buying into that whole thing, I'm like, why am I doing this? Because it makes me more comfortable to assign my anger and my vitriol and my hatred to a single person. Like if we make someone the enemy or something the enemy, whether it's Trump or Fauci or Gates or Mickey Willis or Mark Ching or whoever, like that person's evil, they're bad, let's hate them. It gives us a place to funnel our anxiety and our stress and our fear. And I think that's why people are so quick to do it with is it gives us an opportunity to funnel that uncertainty and that terror and that fear into a single place and blaming someone else. And I'm very, very mindful of not doing that because I don't think it's healthy personally on a psychological level to do that. That person's evil. Let's direct our vitriol and our hatred toward them. It doesn't mean that there's not suspect things about them, perhaps. And I'm just using those people as examples of what's in the media right now. But to label someone as 100% evil or 100% bad, that's kind of dangerous territory. Well, this brings up something that we've discussed before about expertise. And I think it was in a Facebook post that I read that was linked to in at least one of the other articles. 
So again, I'll put this Facebook post in the show notes because it's a public Facebook post and I thought it was really eloquent. I might be sharing some things that were scattered throughout a number of different articles, but when I combine my notes together, here's some of the points that I thought were really interesting. So how do you vet experts for actually having expertise in a particular area? No one human can know it all. Nobody alive today can possibly have 100% of the answers. So we should remain skeptical of anybody who says they can explain it all. And this has certainly come up for us, Jason. (laughs) It just seems like there are some people that we've come across or friends of ours even who position themselves online as experts. And that was part of the reason we recorded that episode, which feels like an eternity ago. If you haven't listened to it yet as a listener, we will link to that in the show notes. It was basically us discussing whether or not we believed anyone could be a true expert. And that's why this post is really interesting in some of these articles I were reading, which a few other lines I came up across. Some people with advanced degrees are perfectly willing to lead their expertise or overreach on their claims just to get attention. Yet, because of alarmist and outrageous tweets and claims, people are flocking to each other's feeds. And then these people are gaining a high enough profile that even some in the news media and the governor, at least one state, have come to view certain people as an expert. I think they were giving a specific example in this case where basically people that are just sharing their views, they're so outrageous, they're getting all of this attention. And then the news media and even governors of states are starting to view certain people as experts, right? Despite the fact that they had no training and no understanding of what they were talking about, it was just simply because they were gaining all that attention as we've been talking about, right? Some of the articles that I've been reading have warned us against not being dazzled by credentials. I mean, even if somebody has a PhD or an MD, we should still be skeptical. We should seek out and respect the expertise of those with domain-specific knowledge and revising our positions as new information accumulates. We should accept and acknowledge the limits of our own knowledge, even as we work to expand it, allowing ourselves to step away when it becomes too much so that you can step back in when you are needed the most. You want to read reporting and analysis from people with a lot of experience in the trenches with health and scientific journalism. That means no random YouTube videos, explicitly political websites, or the forwarded emails from the MD in Ireland no one can find her name. That must be a specific person. I don't know who they're referring to. Legacy media outlets are still imposing processes of fact-checking and layers of editing, along with the standard requirements of basic science journalism, which includes having insights from people not involved in the study being covered. So I think that's one reason that we see certain outlets as being credible is because they have to go through processes of this fact-checking and editing and multiple people are looking at things versus, I mean, just anybody can go on YouTube and make a video. And even actually in the one of the pieces that I read about Mickey Willis, I mean, he self-funded that project. And he also said, again, don't quote me on this, I think it might have been an LA Times article. I can find that and put it in the show notes here. But I'm fairly certain that they discovered that he hadn't even fully vetted or shared his full opinion on, what is her name, Judy, Dr. Judy? Mikovits, uh-huh. Yes, thank you. Yes. 
he was basically saying he hadn't even put out all the information about her yet. And I kind of got the impression that like that was just a snippet of this project that he's been working on and self-funding. And there's a lot more to come. And so part of me wonders, like, why was that released if that wasn't all of what he was working on? Because now people are assuming that that's his full opinion. And then I start to wonder, did he mean to release it? Did he release it just to get attention? You know what I'm saying? Like, and again, if this is him creating this on his own, and maybe he's hiring people to work on this project that all have that confirmation bias and not being fact-checked, not having layers of editing from people that are not involved, right? I think that's part of the issue here is vetting these experts, knowing that not everybody's going to have the answers, that information is constantly changing, and really being aware of, is this is this something that's just getting a lot of attention? Is somebody getting a high profile just because so many eyeballs are on it because it's being shared so much? And does this person that's creating this or the group that's creating this, do they have domain-specific knowledge? Mm. I mean, I think that this goes back to what I think, Whitney, how can we separate our pre-existing beliefs or our pre-existing expectations or any forms of confirmation bias from the content we put out in the world? I think it's incredibly difficult to do, and it begs the question in this era right now of News being released around the world in a matter of seconds when something happens via all of these social media channels combined with fake news, combined with, as you said, anybody can put out a YouTube video, combined with the rampant censorship that's happening right now. My question goes back to, is anyone actually and can anyone be fully committed to the truth with a capital T? Because I think in order to do that, you would have to remove your pre-existing belief systems. You'd have to remove any levels of confirmation bias psychologically. You'd have to remove any sort of egoic motivation of getting big, getting attention, getting significance. I don't know that it's actually possible for any journalist, filmmaker, videographer, reporter, talent, anybody who's commenting on this particular situation, any situation really, to be fully vested in removing the ego and anything else going on and saying, I'm going to bring you the truth no matter what. I don't think that's going on at all right now with anyone. Because I don't know that it's possible as a human being in this day and age to do that. You know what I'm saying? Of removing all of those layers to be like, no matter what, I'm going to hunt for the truth and find the truth. And even that, there's some ego in that, right? Of like, I'm the one who's fully committed to the truth. I have no ego in this. Like, there's ego in that too. So regardless of the source wit, I think it's important to remember that people are invested in some level of their version of the truth. Everyone is, including you and I. And I don't know that it's possible to separate that from the absolute truth or universal truth, if there even is one. Because again, we go back to our perspective as the observer in quantum reality, influencing the outcome of events in this planet. And this is the existential conundrum of being a human here in this reality, isn't it? Is like, is there anything we can know for sure? Is there an absolute universal truth? Can we remove ourselves from our biases? I don't know. Well, I think right now, especially challenging time and people are very vulnerable right now. I mean, one thing I came across that I didn't really find familiar, it sounds vaguely familiar, maybe I've read about this one, but it's called Gish Gallup. Have you heard of this, Jason? I'm sorry, Gish Gallup? Yeah. Like as in a Gallup poll? I guess. I don't know. Tell me about it. What is the? <laughs> it's a technique used during debating 
that focuses on overwhelming an opponent with as many arguments as possible without regard for accuracy or strength of the arguments. Oh, that sounds like most of our entire political system. (laughs) I mean, on all sides, I just say that. Yeah, for sure. And it's tough because many people, especially right now, don't have the energy to push back. We're all strung out, burnt out, stressed, and tired. And we have to be very strategic about what we can tolerate. And I think sometimes it seemed like you were facing, Jason, the other day when I wanted to talk about this on the personal level. You just seemed like, I can't take it. I can't read anymore about this. It's just way too much. And I think that makes us incredibly vulnerable because when we feel overwhelmed and we're already feeling strung out, burnt out, stressed, and tired. It's like it gives somebody an opportunity to feel like they're winning the argument or have more strength in that. And another line that I came across that I thought was really important is that science communication should be about service, not self-importance. And I think that's true of any communication, right? It's like, We live in a time that's so focused on self-importance, and maybe this has been true for a long time, but it just feels incredibly true with social media and how media can be distributed. Anybody can post a blog post, anybody can post on YouTube, send a tweet. Like We have so much power in that sense. And if we come from a place of being self-important before we come from a place of being in service, and then our self-importance is tied to us constantly defending ourselves and proving ourselves and being powerful. So whatever we can do to overwhelm anybody who disagrees with us, right now, we're just also vulnerable to that, that it's hard to decipher when somebody is doing something simply because they want to be validated. Yeah, it is hard to discern that. And I want to clarify too, when you sent me that article, that Forbes article, Whitney, I have noticed that I need to be mindful of my level of overwhelm because that's very tied to my mental health. And in terms of how it's tied to my mental health, not specifically the article you sent me, but so many people sending me articles between family members and colleagues that you and I know who are having a specific position about this to you and I being best friends. It, It just There have been specific days during the course of this pandemic where I have felt like I've been, and when I say bombarded, not because anyone's intending on bombarding me, but it's like, whoa, have you seen this? Holy shit. I would like your opinion on this. But the overwhelm button gets pressed. And I feel to what you said, to echo back what you said, so vulnerable and someday so fragile in terms of my sanity and my mental health that reading one more thing or taking in one more point of view is like, don't do it. Because I know that for me, when I have done that, I'm already feeling overwhelmed and keep reading articles and keep watching YouTube videos and keep listening to podcasts. That my level of anxiety, specifically anxiety, starts to spiral and reach a level that it's very, very hard for me to center myself and feel balanced again. So I'm trying to do a good job of, okay, let me put a pin in this and come back to reading this article, which I did. But in this moment, I know if I open up that bucket and take in even more contrasting information or studies or research or anything around this, my brain goes into, I don't know what is real anymore. And maybe we don't know what's real, but it's almost as if the existential anxiety of all that becomes so great that I throw my hands up and I'm like, what the fuck is the point of all this? If we don't know what's true, but then 
that spirals into maybe we never know what's true and maybe we never know what's real. And the only thing we can do is live in the moment and do the best we can with the information we have, knowing that the information is going to change, the research is going to change, the science is going to change, what we hold to be true, personally true, subjectively is going to change. And it goes back to the wabi-sabi nature of life, right? That Japanese philosophy, we've mentioned it here on the podcast, which is everything is ever-changing, everything is imperfect, nothing is ever finished, and everything is in a constant state of flux. And maybe that's the gift of this pandemic, wit is on a spiritual level or a level of mind and soul, that it's showing us that things are changing so fast and so rapidly and everything's in a state of flux that we don't have the proverbial ground of certainty to stand on anymore. And every single day, I feel like I'm getting that lesson over and over again is, yeah, you don't know what's real and there is no certainty and everything's changing so fucking fast. You can't even keep your head out of your own ass. It's like, whoa. And maybe that's okay. And maybe that's the lesson spiritually we need as human beings on this planet right now is to go like, hey, maybe the highest or most evolved spiritual position is I don't know, is I don't know. Yes. And legit, Whitney, yeah. I feel like every single day, I'm just repeating that to myself of like, I don't know. I don't know. And I think that that is actually an incredible and very appealing quality to have because over the years, I found myself being repelled by people who position themselves as having it all figured out. Like, I know the truth. And if you don't believe this, and those extreme perspectives have really triggered me. I actually much prefer people who are encouraging us to figure it out on our own. You know, it's like it goes back to a traditional form of therapy where you're not giving advice to somebody, you're helping them find their own answers. And I think curiosity is the big key instead of saying, I mean, sometimes you might say, I don't know and I don't need to know. And other times you might say, I don't know, let's find out or let's see what we can come across. Maybe you don't actually find out. Maybe you just you just allow yourself to be curious, but have no attachment to the outcome and whether you find anything. And I think that's where things like this trigger me is when it feels like somebody is trying to prove themselves as right. And ultimately, to me, that's just a form of getting validation and trying to get power and trying to be greater than. And that's a bit of a toxic way of operating if you're trying to manipulate people to just believe you and go with you. I mean, some of the worst times in history have stemmed from that mentality of, I know what's good. And if you don't follow me, you're against me. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that that happens a lot, though. As human beings, we are drawn to people who seem to have it all figured out because uncertainty is so uncomfortable. And then when we realize that that might not be true, I mean, it kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier about just individuals that we know, if we trust them and then somebody gives us a reason not to trust them, it's incredibly uncomfortable. It is that vulnerable feeling of the rug being taken out is, wow, if something I thought was true is not true, who can I trust? That's a scary place to be for a lot of people because your frame on reality gets shattered, doesn't it? Of I thought I could trust this person, this source, this government, this outlet, whatever it is. When that rug gets pulled out from under us, that's a scary, confusing, disorienting place to be. I think there's an element too of all this, Whitney, there's almost like a fantasy aspect. Fantasy is not necessarily the right word, but a fantastical aspect to all of this. 
and to me, where my mind goes in all of this of sort of the theoretical aspects or the massive amount of research that some people dig into. And I say this to you because I'm curious about your researching during all of this, because I know what a well-researched, logical person you are. In our circle of friends and colleagues and business people we do business with, like your research and organization skills are pretty legendary. But to put a pin in that really quickly, I think that there's a fine line between people wanting to research to find, quote, the truth and indulging in fantastical aspects because it's like, oh, I know that the CIA killed JFK. I have proof. Like the CIA definitely killed John F. Kennedy. And Jimmy Hoffa was definitely killed by the mob and he's buried under Giant Stadium. And there's definitely aliens because I've been outside Roswell and I was abducted. They're definitely real. You know, we could keep going down a million different roads on this subject. But I think that there's there is a deep desire in the human psyche to be sure about the truth of something because the unknown on a very primal fundamental level of going down the dark path in the forest, venturing into the cave and not knowing what's there, the proverbial monster in the closet or under the bed is still a figment of the human psyche that if we know the monster and we can identify the monster and are convinced and sure that we have proof that the monster is in the fucking closet, we feel like we can sleep better at night. I remember this as a kid, like trying to prove to my mom there was a monster in my closet. Like I was convinced. (laughs) Are you serious? Oh, absolutely. I was scared as hell (laughs) that there was this pasty white vampiric googly eyed tiny little creature living in my closet. Like there literally as a kid, there were sleepless nights. And I remember trying to show my mom he's under this specific floorboard and we just need to open the floorboard because he's down there and then we can get him and we can kill him. How old were you? I don't know, maybe five, six years old. I don't know. From what I remember, she was just trying to reassure me like, you know, babe, there's no monster under there. It's okay. It's fine. It's okay. But I was convinced there was this fucking monster that would come out of my closet every night and wait under my bed to suck my blood. Okay. (laughs) And listen, in all seriousness, I'm bringing this up, Whitney, because I feel like there is a fantastical element of the human psyche that wants to believe. And I am not on either side of this. Aliens are real. Loch Ness Monster is real. Bigfoot's real. JFK got killed by the CIA. Bill Gates wants to microchip us and vaccinate everyone. Whatever the hell it is, there's an element of the highest position I know is, I don't know. Is Bigfoot real? Don't know. Loch Ness Monster? Don't know. Do aliens exist? I don't know. But it's fun to fantasize about it, right? So there's this element of like, if we can identify and confirm that the threat is real, the monster, the gates, the vaccine, the chip, the one world government, the reptilians, whatever the fuck it is. There's a feeling of safety because, aha, see, the monster's real, and we're going to prove to you the monster's real because then we can fight the monster, right? So to me, I'm not saying it's unevolved. I'm not saying it's childlike. I'm saying I think it's a part of our human psyche to want to feel safe by being able to identify the, quote, monster so we can fight it and defeat it. Yes, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think ultimately the key is not to judge other people if they feel that way. It's interesting, though, because I was also, as I was reading about this, a lot of the authors of these articles were talking about why it's important to confront somebody if you feel like their ideas haven't been well thought through, like if they're not fact-checked, right? And it's like, why should I even bother saying anything? If you don't push back on them, though, even to those that you love or don't want to upset, you're in a way enabling them. And 
Instead, if we can encourage them to have healthy skepticism and start a conversation from a place of humility and genuine curiosity, that can be very helpful to others. And when we speak up on things that we disagree with, we erode the bystander effect, which is typically used to explain why people are less likely to help in an emergency if other people are around. So if someone makes a racist comment, for example, and no one speaks up, other people don't want to be the first one to say something. But if you're the first one to say someone, it's actually inspiring and emboldening other people to push back on their walls too. And if we speak up against misinformation, it's contagious in a good way. If you do it, then you're encouraging other people and helping them realize that they can not only do that, but maybe they should. And sometimes you're giving people the actual language that they can use to say these things. So I felt like that was a really great perspective. But the trick is, though, if none of us really know the truth and the answers, then what do you say to somebody (laughs) that you don't agree with? You know what I mean? Like, I found myself reading that and going, okay, I feel encouraged now. But then through this conversation we're having right now on the podcast, I'm starting to feel like, but who am I to say anything, right? Because it's not an that I don't have confidence in myself and my beliefs. It's more that if none of us have the answers, then what's the point of disagreeing with somebody? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it gets complicated, doesn't it? I mean, I think in the case of like racism, that seems more cut and dry to me because I'm strongly against lack of equality, right? I stand for equality. I feel like nobody should be bullied. Nobody should be treated poorly just because of who they are or what they look like. That I feel like I could stand up on very easily. But when it comes to something like COVID, it's really tricky. And I guess part of it is understanding that I don't have all the answers. But the other part of it is I want to be careful because to your point, Jason, I don't want to like devalidate if that's a term or go against like somebody's feelings. Like to me, it's like at the core. And as I've reflected a lot on some of my own friends' reactions that seem different than mine in terms of COVID, I've really thought to myself, I bet you that this person is expressing those feelings or that belief system or performing these actions simply because they're afraid. And if I get to the core of a lot of reactions, it's like, maybe this person is just doing this or saying this because they're afraid, just like you did. It's like, if I can prove this this conspiracy, then I'll be able to protect myself from it. And it's been really fascinating because for the most part, I feel like I'm happy to comply to what the government's asking us to do. You know, like, I'm happy to wear my mask and stay inside and not socialize. I'm an introvert, so that's easy. (laughs) And (laughs) I'll be careful when I go to the grocery store and I'll wait in line and I'll follow the paths that they put on the floor and whatever else. Look at those rules. And again, I've talked about this before, but for any new listeners, I'm what they call a questioner. So if a rule makes sense to me, I'll question it first. But once it makes sense to me, I'll go through with it. If it doesn't make sense to me, I'll try to make sense of it. And that's part of the reason that I research things. So it's interesting to me, people that are rebellious, though, because sometimes I can have this judgment that maybe they're rebelling just to be a jerk, right? Like, oh, you just want to be in control or whatever. But if we really break down some of this, 
maybe it is a control thing and they want control because they're scared and they don't want to be told what to do because they don't agree with what they're being told to do. And I think that's actually really healthy too, that we should have skepticism. Like we shouldn't believe anything really until we examine it enough to figure out if it works for us. I think that is really healthy. But I think where it gets really tricky is A, when people take sides, that can be turned into a form of bullying, right? As we've kind of said, if you're like, you're wrong and I'm right, I don't agree with that personally. Yeah. That's something I'll stand up again. Like, hey, everybody's perspective should be taken into consideration. And if nobody really has any answers, we should just respect somebody for what they believe in this moment because our opinions could change at some point. You know, it's like somebody that has political views. I know people that voted for Trump and now regret voting for Trump, but they voted for him because of how they felt at the time. And now they feel differently about him. And that could change just because somebody did something in the past or is doing something in the present doesn't mean that that's exactly what they'll be doing in the future. We've talked about this with veganism. And I've said, yeah, I've been vegan since 2003 and I feel very strongly about it. But that doesn't guarantee I'm always going to be vegan because what if something changes that I could never possibly predict? So this idea of like, I'm vegan forever. I mean, how could I predict anything that's going to be forever? It's not that I don't feel strongly about being vegan right now, but I'm willing to express the fact that I don't know. I can't say that I'll be doing anything forever, right? Yeah. It brings up a couple things. Number one is that you just hearken back to the ever-changing nature of reality, that people's opinions, their feelings, their perspectives change. And I also think it brings up a threshold of how much of people's personal autonomy or rights they're willing to yield or give up. You know, you talked about going to the grocery store and keeping a six-foot distance and wearing a mask and using hand sanitizer. You're still able to get your groceries. You might have to stand in a little bit of a line, but I've done that. You've done that. Doesn't seem to be a big deal for either of us or certain businesses being closed, things like that. Where I start to get into feeling more rebellious, if you will, for someone who is a rebellious person, I haven't felt particularly, I don't know, flagrantly rebellious throughout this whole quarantine and shutdown. Where I start to feel myself getting very rebellious is when there is talk of my personal health and the health of my loved ones and our autonomy of our own bodies and freedoms being greatly and drastically compromised. Like that's my line, if you will. And where I get into is like, okay, cool. Yeah. Grocery store, masks, hand sanitizer, whatever. Fine. When they start to talk about, and I say talk about the idea of in order to resume international air travel or to give access to our currency or our medical records, or these things, that you will be required to receive a vaccination, or receive a tracking chip, or upgrade your phone so that your interactions are trackable. We talked a little bit about this with Paul Jarvis on the data privacy and social media episode that we'll link to in the show notes. But that's my level of concern, Wit, is when we get into higher levels of privacy, security, and the physical agency and autonomy of my body, if it were to come to, hey, if you want to fly and travel, you're going to need to get this chip implanted in your body or get a forcible vaccination. That's a hard line for me. And that's when it's like, mm, now you're threatening my personal agency and like, you have to put this thing in your body or else you can't do X, Y, and Z. That's my line. That's when I start to be like, uh, uh, I might need to think about if I ever want to travel again. 
Yeah, but then what if traveling again means that you don't get to see your mom? That's what I'm saying is it gets complicated. It's very complicated because I absolutely agree. Like, I mean, I don't want to put anything in my body unless, again, it's a questioner element. I don't want to put that in my body unless I understand what's going to happen and what the reality is. Yeah. And also, what are the pros and cons? I mean, I feel close enough to my family that I probably would go to a lot of extremes to see them and I don't live near them. So I do need to fly to them unless, I mean, I guess I would drive to them. That was the thing. I'm like, well, I'd be willing to do a five-day road trip to go see my family if that's what it came to. You know, if I had an option, I agree with you. But what about going across to Europe or something? It's not something I do very often. Or go to Hawaii. Let's talk about that. I mean, we talk about going to Hawaii all the time to visit friends. And if you have to literally fly somewhere, what, are you never going to fly again just because you have to get a chip? Yeah, it's terrifying because I don't want a chip in my body. But at what cost do we resist something? I don't know. It's really complicated. And that's the line for me when it comes down to giving up potentially my health or the agency of my own physical body in exchange for certain freedoms and conveniences that we've set up in our society. And it's a conundrum. It is a conundrum because then it's like, okay, am I going to take trains and cars and boats everywhere and never fly again? I don't know. And this is just an extreme example of air travel and international access and to the nth degree, cryptocurrency and living in a cashless society and this microchip allowing you access to your funds. I mean, I guess my point in all this is that's not the reality we're living in. And we're not at a point where I'm like, we need to rise up and protest. But if it were to come down to the proposal of those kind of things being implemented in the world, I would go fucking protest. And I think to your point, part of the reason people are upset right now is because they think that's going to happen and they're trying to protect that from happening. And it's like the different extremes is part of me is like, let's just wait and see what happens. Because we have no, again, we don't know what the future holds for us. However, if we look at it from an environmental perspective, we can't just wait and see. We have to be proactive. And we the same thing with our health. We can't wait and see what's going to happen with certain foods. We have to do things that give us the best long-term shot that we have. And it's tricky because a lot of us humans work in the present moment. It's easier to focus on the short term. But some things require us to focus on the long term. The challenge is like how much of the long term is affecting your mental health. And I think that's where I get stressed out when it comes to making decisions and weighing out the pros and cons all the time. It's it's exhausting. And going down these rabbit holes and trying to stay on top of what's happening. And the trick is that there's just so much conflicting information out there. It's really tough to know. So it ultimately comes down to I think two of the main points that we've made during this discussion is one is to follow your intuition and to keep tuning into your own personal awareness and allowing that to grow because your intuition may expand over time. Being patient, being curious, and staying aware when you have the energy to be aware. I think maybe a big concern right now is, as I said, we're so vulnerable right now. Many of us are feeling burnt out and There could be a lot of things happening that we're not even aware of because we don't even have the energy to pay attention to them. That's where it gets dangerous. So we have to push ourselves to find ways to stay informed as much as possible. 
And I think one of the big reasons that we started this podcast is to share our perspectives with like-minded people. And that was something that a lot of the articles I was reading concluded is that the place to affect change isn't from a pedestal. It's from within the social networks of communities with shared values and ideas. So even though we can find ourselves in that confirmation bias, we can become part of a bubble. There is a lot of benefits to finding communities of people that are like-minded and also have a diverse community of people within that like-minded perspective. Is like maybe you have somebody that loves to do research like I do. Like that's a valuable thing, but you should also have somebody that's rebellious so that they can question things. You know, having a questioner, a rebel, all, there's a, the four tendencies by Gretchen Rubin, and I forget what the other two are. Obliger is one of them, and there's one more. But it's basically people that operate differently and bringing all the different strengths. And that kind of comes down to like some of the old ways of living in communities where people each brought their individual skills to the table to support one another. And we could definitely benefit from more of that because It's just like also how family units work. A strong family unit supports one another when one person either doesn't have a skill or doesn't have the energy physically or mentally to do something, somebody else can step in and do it. That's where we work really well, complementary skills. So my encouragement to you, the listener, and to us, you and me, Jason, is to create a community of like-minded people to share ideas, to share research and find people that complement the gaps in your knowledge, the gaps in your skills, the gaps in your energy, the gaps in your awareness and your culture. And if you bring that diverse community together, I think a lot of positivity can come out of it and we'll ultimately feel less alone. I love that you brought this up because our dear friend Adam Yasmin's podcast, also called the Wabi Sabi Podcast, I saw a little bit of it earlier today where he was talking about the kind of neo-future tribalism that he envisions returning to human society. And if I zoom out a little bit, Whitney, and you talking about communities of people with complementary skills and knowledge coming together to support one another, I think an inevitable offshoot of the increasingly technocratic society and perhaps the splintering of a lot of the foundations of the 20th and 21st century society that we're in and seeing a lot of the systems evolve and break down is people getting together in community, actual physical community of, you know, getting land together and putting up tiny houses or having a community space where they can physically gather and grow food together and have medicinal herbs and someone who has medical training, someone who has culinary training, someone who's an entertainer, someone who's good with childcare, someone who's good with creating actual physical housing structures. And I see an inevitable offshoot of where humanity is going into going back to a tribalist state. And when I say tribalist state, I do say neo-futurist because with the knowledge and skills that we have and the variety of different personalities, I love the idea of getting a small to medium group of people together and getting land somewhere and putting up structures and sharing those resources and knowledge and wisdom. And I think if we do see a surveillance culture or getting microchipped or a technocratic state trying to control people, I think there will be large groups of people who are like, peace, we're going to go out into the countryside, away from the cities, live a simpler life, live off the land. And I'm kind of excited about the possibilities, you know, for all of the confusion or doom and gloom or conspiracies or conflicting information. 
I'm also excited about the number of friends that I've talked to that we know who are brewing their own home remedies and planting gardens and baking their own bread and learning new skills. And I just personally kind of resonate with this idea that people are going to physically get together and share those skills and simplify life. And that's a lot of the positives that I see coming out of this very strange, very wonderful, very confusing, and very psychedelic situation we're all in. So that being said, we are here on This Might Get Uncomfortable to communicate to you, dear listener, that we don't have all the answers, but we are exploring and we are looking and we are curious and we are researching and staying as open-minded and open-hearted as possible to look for those things with you. So if you want to get access to all of the resources, the books, the articles, the movies, the things that we mentioned during this episode, please visit wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can visit the show notes section to get all of those great resources. We also have some great free eBooks there, including You Are Enough and also Take Charge, which is a great interview series that we have all about motivation and positivity. And of course, our courses, Wellness Warrior Training and The Consistency Code. Our mission here is to share this human experience with you as we grow and evolve and go through life together. So you can find us on social media. We always love to hear from you. Either email us at hello at wellevator.com or shoot us a direct message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. We love hearing from you. And we always love receiving your feedback on these episodes and ideas for future ones because we want this to be a conversation with you that continues to evolve and grow as we do. So with that, dear listener, thank you for being here from my heart and Whitney's heart to yours. We will see you again soon and connect with you on another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 